0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen and Michael Trout conclude their two-part discussion on his video, Family Transitions. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchatuck.com. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout 20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20.
1: This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has Produced. We're first going to focus on his videos and uh, then later we will be focusing on some of his books. So I would like to, for listeners who don't know about Michael and his work, share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the child development project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He has also written and produced five videos focusing on the unique perspective of babies on divorce, adoption, loss, domestic violence, and parental incarceration, and in fact, these videos are going to be the focus of the first part of this new series I'm doing with Michael Trout. He comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respect colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go.
0: Hi, this is Debbie Reed, and the book that Karen Buckwalter, myself, along with Wendy Lyon Sunshine, recently released, Raising the Challenging Child, is now available for purchase. I hope you'll visit the website, RaisingTheChallengingChild.com, to purchase the book. Thanks so much.
2: There's a a couple lines that I hope maybe you'll be able to play for uh, listeners, where the child finally concludes
3: what they want me to say. That all the grown ups in my life should stop acting so stupid. That people should stop trying to make like everything's gonna be all right. Well, I know perfectly well that it is not.
1: That reminds me of the way children just sort of blurt things out the way they see them, uh, you know, so, sometimes in funny, embarrassing ways, you know, but really, how could all of us be pretending it's all going to just be okay? When you put it from the child's perspective, it does sound pretty outrageous that we're carrying on a charade like that, doesn't it?
2: It does. And, you know, to hear, that, to hear you say that back to me makes me be reminded that a great opportunity is then afforded. If parents can come to grips with the fact that these are dumb questions, not just those asked by the evaluators, but the ones asked overtly or subtly by each parent, if they can come to grips with that, then it will suddenly dawn on them the best avenue to supporting the child and understanding the child is to say to say that out loud, boy, this is stupid, isn't it? I'm getting you dressed to take, take you over to your mommy's house and you, you are crying and you don't want to leave here. But when we get over there, you might cry because you don't want me to leave. But then the next time I come pick you up, you might cry because you don't want to leave her. I bet you just wish we'd all just stop this silliness. Yes. And suddenly we have a moment of empathy and a moment of quiet. And a moment of holding and oddly enough the child is then fortified to go on with whatever was the next step yes saying those words and and reflecting back to the child what you imagine he might be thinking right now does not make him think it more or break down it makes him feel fortified because a parent, at least one parent, understands it.
1: Yeah, I love that you're choosing that word because, you know, I often talk about the need to validate the child's experience in, instead of trying to talk them out of it. Um, but this is taking it a step further than, I mean, validating is one thing and having the feel, child feel heard and seen is is important but fortify that that's different that gives them strength to keep going forward with what they're having to cope with
2: with what grown-ups have decided is best by the way i don't mean at all to imply that the child will say oh thank you for being empathic and understanding me he may find this whole conversation miserable just miserable but nonetheless he may know that you get it
1: yes yes
2: one of my sons that i just spent some time with he's now in his 40s he still remembers what sunday afternoons at two o'clock were like because that was the time to take him back to his mom he wanted to go back to his mom he loved his mom he still loves his mom but he didn't want to leave me either. And I excessively shrink type that I am, I suppose thought when I saw that sadness on his face every Sunday at two o'clock, that it would be a good time to talk. And this particular child did not share that opinion. He just wasn't built that way. He isn't to this day. In fact, maybe the fact that he isn't to this day is is a result of the fact that I would ask him those crazy questions. Oh, sweetheart, you want to come sit on my lap? No, he would say. (laughs) Oh, sweetheart, can we go for a walk and talk? No, he would say. (laughs) I don't think I was misplaced in my empathy or in my reflecting what I thought he might be feeling, but I was misplaced in my imagination that he would cooperate with it or that he would maybe. did he, I hope I didn't wish that he would be grateful for it, but anyway, that he'd have any reaction except, oh, I just don't want this to happen at all. Could we go back to that beginning part where it hadn't happened yet?
1: Yes. Well, let's continue with some of the themes that, out of the, the many uh, that you wanted to cover, what, what are some of the other ones that you covered in the video or, or uh, attempted to at least?
2: Well, it seemed to me that one of the most important experiences that children have is trying to place their own blame. And that, that is in the context of parents often blaming each other while secretly blaming themselves. Mm. So everybody is blaming and everybody is searching for who's to blame. Meanwhile, the child, and there's some ironies here, may be blaming himself. And it's completely irrational, but we cannot talk him out of it. And it took me a while to figure out why we couldn't talk him out of it. And I believe I stumbled across it when it dawned on me that if the child is already feeling helpless in this mess that's happening, then what would make him feel less helpless? Well, there are, it's a pretty short list, but tops on them would be, hey, what if it's my fault? If it's my fault, then all I have to do is figure out that thing I did that made this happen and then i'll just not do that anymore Mm -hmm. i'll undo that and so for for grown-ups therapists or parents to try to talk a child out of it being his or her fault is to take away from them some of their potency now having said that i'll say of course we have to do it anyway because the child cannot be left with the fantasy that he made this happen.
1: Yes. But
2: parents need to know what they're up against when they're trying to have that conversation, or why they've now said seven times in a row, "Oh, sweetheart, you didn't make this happen. This is Daddy and Mommy's problem. This is this is between us. This isn't about you." And we we think that will help, and it will, but then again, it won't.
1: Because there's a certain um, powerlessness, even terror in that, that what you mean people so important to me can do these unexpected things that, that uh, are so upsetting or that mean I can't see them enough as much or enough, or I can't be with them enough. So it's, a really difficult thing for the child to face that this, Hey, this prospect's out there, this can happen. And it's not to do with you. um, Which infers you can't do anything to stop it either.
2: And that the whole world is just random. You can just be dinking along riding your tricycle and boom, the world collapses. I'll hope, I hope that you'll include a, um, the voice of, the, of what one child that I remembered very well who developed this particular fantasy. She said,
3: The other day I made a terrible mess trying to fix you some Ovaltine because I thought that would make you less nervous.
2: And then you would be nicer to my mom when she came over to get me. It's completely out of the blue and I was startled when she told me that she had told her mom that her, or was it the mom that told me that she said that anyway, I learned about it from one of them and and it's it's a, it's silly I guess, but it's exactly how the child was formulating an answer to the question, what can I do about this? Well, I can make her that oval team.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, just shows such a a feeling of the child needing some kind of feeling of efficacy, or I can do something, or I can help something, or I can make something better.
2: So going on, I picked uh, a couple of examples trying to demonstrate the ways in which this thing will rear its head for the mother and father during the divorce period and after. And I again used an example from work with children. The child uh, says, didn't you even wonder how, didn't you ever wonder how it was that I started barfing whenever we had hot dogs? Which I really like, but which reminded me of two summers ago, before the divorce, when we went camping all together as a family and laughed a lot and ate about a million hot dogs together. So my point was only to to help parents develop a mind that would allow them to wonder, wait a minute, I just made my kid hot dogs, I thought it would be his favorite dinner. Why is he throwing up and telling me he hates hot dogs and always hated hot dogs and why didn't I know that and mom never gives me hot dogs because she knows I hate hot dogs. How can a parent piece all that together? it together the same way you piece other things together when your first priority is to have an open heart to your child's experience. And if you do, you might remember that camping trip, and you might wonder what it means to the child to hold a memory of eating hot dogs in a context that he yearns for so much, everybody being together and not being mad.
1: It's so sad. Yeah.
2: I tell a story about one little girl who remembered hearing her mom and dad fight about laundry. And the the argument began evidently with mom saying she was sick and tired of her life. Everything about her life sucked. And didn't the father understand what it was like for her to do about 100 loads of laundry every week and trying to keep up with the kids and he never helps at all. And the child held on to that memory of that pre-divorce argument, so that during the divorce, this child kept uh, came up with this fantasy that she would save up to buy her mom a new washing machine. And since it was going kind of slow, <laughs> but is saving up enough.
1: Yes. Who's
2: was now just hiding her dirty clothes under her bed, which mom doesn't know and is going to be mad about when she finds them and is going to think there's no explanation for my daughter hiding all of her dirty clothes under the bed. But there is an explanation. It's just going to be a little bit tough to come up with unless you have a very soft and a very open heart.
1: These little people are so ingenious, really. If if we can, as you're saying, open our hearts, open our minds, and I think be able to tolerate our own pain that gets exacerbated by hearing about the child's pain.
2: That's a brilliant note. That is part of the problem, isn't it?
1: Because we say
2: we are empathic. We say we do understand what our children feel. And the fact that we don't, that we kind of are lousy at it at moments like this, uh, is not because we're stupid or mean, it's because of exactly what you just now said. We are in such pain ourselves, it kind of crowds out too much how can I say, too much room for understanding the depth of our of our child's pain. Yes. If in the midst of that, we're, we've gone to the mall, we've gotta pick up a couple things, we don't have a lot of time, we gotta meet the, the, the other parent in a minute to make the transfer of the child, And lo and behold, right in the middle of that, our child runs away from us in the mall. It's humiliating. Other people in the mall see our child running away. They're probably thinking, what's the matter with this guy or what's the matter with this lady? Can't she or he control their child? It's miserable. And we we yell or we chase and we don't understand what's going on. And the child then explains in the film, and maybe you could play this little, this just these two little lines here. The child explains that it's a game. It's a game where I make you disappear. Because the life I've been living is one where you just disappear and I can't do anything about it. So how about we play this game where I run away and now I'm in charge. And the child, the child speaks at the end.
3: And I can make you come back just by coming out of hiding myself. Wow.
2: What a glorious feeling that would be for a child. I made you come back. I ran away from you in the mall. I hid in the clothes rack. And then I made you come back by coming out of hiding myself.
1: So how, how do you bring to a close a uh, film like this, Michael? How, how did you decide to end it?
2: Well, I used several other examples, and I just want to mention one of them. Because please it, it please do. It came up so often. If the child is in preschool uh, or has a tight neighborhood group I found that a great many children made up stories about what was really going on in the house that would um, make it seem somehow more tolerable. And um, so this, this one child says that a kid at his preschool told another kid that his parents were getting divorced, that his dad, but that his dad was gonna come back and see him every single Saturday, even if he had to use an Air Force helicopter. And the child then says, and maybe you can play these lines uh, for the listeners.
3: I told him that was stupid, that the Air Force won't let you use their helicopters. Then I told him, I don't know why, that my parents were never going to get divorced. But my mom did have to go to Saudi Arabia for a while on a big oil deal.
1: Wow Doesn't
2: that sound a lot better than that my parents fight all the time and so they're gonna separate and I'm gonna have to live my life jumping back and forth.
1: Yes, it does.
2: So the child the, the last one of the last things I have the children saying to grown-ups is if you're gonna get divorced, if you're gonna do this thing, then stop acting like you're still married and still getting upset with each other like you did last night at the McDonald's parking lot.
3: I mean, might as well still be married and don't act like that.
2: If you got divorced because you were unhappy, then you're supposed to be more happy now. So act nice to each other, at least when I have to watch you.
1: Michael, it just never occurred to me until you sharing that part right now that yeah, the assumption would be I'm you know, I'm having all of this upheaval and this change and things that I don't like and don't want, so you can be happy. So if you're still not happy, how maddening and frustrating.
2: And then we just might go back to the first base. The, The the child will then maybe conclude if, if you're still not happy, and you got what you wanted, what's the, what's the primary um, variable? What's the thing that hasn't changed? Oh, me. So I guess I was right in the first place. It was me. You still got me, and you're still unhappy.
1: Yeah. Could definitely be a conclusion drawn. Uh. A
2: film with something you may want to uh, let let listeners listen to from the child's own voice. Uh, where the two children whose voices have appeared throughout the film get together for these final lines.
3: I mean, you may be dumping your children, but I need you both to be my parents. All time I'm a kid, and even after that. That's
2: so. Just a reminder. You don't get off so easy. You're gonna have to still look after me, and I'm still gonna be here.
1: Well, thank you so much for this discussion, Michael. Um, there is so much to think about with this issue, and. I think ways we can be doing much better with it. (laughs) I mean, really, um, knowing from, I don't have the same direct experience, but I've I've been around this. I've lived through it with with separations and different things with my parents, with clients, different things. And uh, there's definitely room for, as with most things, for us to do better. Um, And so I hope that that this this talk and and the video will will help us in that direction so thank you again for another fantastic video
0: you're very welcome
1: bye for now
0: bye bye Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchatik.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchatik.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.